Welcome to the Sawyer Highlands and Converge Community Church Sermon Podcast. This is Season 2 with a brand new series on the book of Daniel. Each week we will upload the sermon that was preached during the Sunday morning service at our New Buffalo campus in hopes that it will serve you well during the week. So sit back, relax, and may you be encouraged by the great hope you have in Jesus Christ as you listen to the preaching of God's Word. Well, welcome. Um, it's I love having people mingle. That's great. That uh, it's great to meet people. And thanks for being here. And those tuning in online, thanks for being here. One of the ways, if you're tuning in online, I love to see people uh, chat who they are because uh, we don't know who's tuning in online and where you're from and where you're at. Sometimes we have people from. We've had people from England uh, tune in online. People all over. If you're traveling, uh, it's kind of fun. So uh, feel free if you're if you're checking us out to uh, chat on that chat feature on YouTube or Facebook, um, uh, the events there. Uh, my grandfather retired. Some of you guys are retired and have uh, lake places. So in, I'm from Minnesota, and all the lakes, except for Superior, all the lakes people play, uh, have places on usually are inland lakes, and they're a little warmer. So you retired to Long Prairie, Minnesota. There's Lake Charlotte, and it was up on a hill, and you go down these steps, and it was just these killer stuff, super far down there. And we'd go there and visit, and we'd fish. We'd fish for sunny and perch and rock bass. And uh, some days were good, some days not so good. I, don't, I, I had a, a day that wasn't so good. I was, I, did, I was on the dock. I didn't know exactly where I was standing. And I just backed up. And then maybe this happened to you. I backed right off the dock into the water. And I, what I caught there wasn't fish. It was, it was a cold. I was wet. Um, so here's a tip. If you're standing on a dock... Remember where you're standing. Um, and I think that's true, that's true for life. Where are you standing? What, what do you stand for? What do you stand up against? Um, and I'm thinking metaphorically. You know, when do you speak up? And when, when do you just be quiet? When do you resist? And when do you make compromises and concessions? Do you bring up every issue and every complaint you have? Is that the smart thing to do? Is that what God wants? Do we stand up to every mandate from the government? What rules should we follow and what should we pass on and just agree to disagree with? What really matters? There seems to be, you know, kind of a, a gradient of answers to that question. Where's the line? Well, the Bible has some guidance for us and has some guidance today. We need to stand on God's word and resist conflicting worldviews, um, specifically in regards to ultimate things. And we're going to go back to the Bible, the book of Galatians. We're going to pick up where we left off, if you remember, prior to our missions month. We're going to continue this series, and we're going to read the verses from chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, open to chapter 4, verse 21, and we'll be going through chapter 5. I asked Rebecca Conway to come up here, and Mike, you have a mic for her. And if you're able, um, would you stand in honor of God's word, please? So stand with me now. Tell me, who, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, 
these women were two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate, one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Thanks, Rebecca. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for dying in our place and forgiving our sin. We, we need you to speak to us. We need you more than we know. Open our eyes to see all that you've done. Help us to know what we need to stand on and stand firm in. Help us to know what we need to resist and resist the evil one in his ways. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So you may remember the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the people of Galatia. We have that map. Did that show up? Right there. So in a light yellow or white, uh, you see Galatia is up there. That's the region uh, where Paul is writing. Why did he write this? What was the occasion for the letter? He wrote because after he presented the gospel to this people in this region, he, he left to go plant churches and encourage churches. Others came in and shared other teaching. They distorted the teaching. They said you had to follow the Mosaic law to be right with God. And they taught something like if you want to be at peace with God, if you want to be free from guilt, if you want to be in good standing, you need to follow the rules. It was part religious part nationalistic, part moralistic. The church began courting this teaching, and Paul heard, heard secondhand this is happening. Messengers or people are coming to him telling him this is happening. And so what does he do? He writes a letter. This is one of the most stern rebukes that we have. If you look at the letters, the tone of this letter is very strong. It's like a reprimand. And then we can summarize, the pastors got around, we summarize, how do we summarize the book of Galatians in a sentence? And you might see this on our posters. It's return to the gospel of grace so you can walk in freedom with the Spirit. Let's all say this together. Return to the gospel of grace so you can walk in freedom with the Spirit. We want to avoid gospel drift, like hashtag gospel drift. We want to avoid drifting from the gospel, from the good news. In this specific passage, Rebecca read, Paul wrote using Genesis. He uses a lot of the Old Testament, but in this specific passage, he goes to Genesis and talks about Abraham, and Abraham has two sons. Often Paul will use the Old Testament to kind of prove his point, to, to 
to show where his work, why he believes what he believes. But he's not using the scripture the same way. He actually tells us how he's using the scripture. It's interesting. What's the word that he uses here? It's not an interpretation. It's an allegory. Allegory. What's an allegory? It's an illustration. He's not interpreting what happened. He's not, this is what this means. He's saying, here's an illustration of what I'm talking about. Admittedly, so when I heard, we read this out loud as pastors and we're kicking around different ideas on Monday morning and it's a little confusing. Was it confusing to you? You're not alone if it was. We can break down the passage into different sections. And Mike, I missed your, your class, the Sunday school class. It's one of the things we do. We try to think of what's the structure and kind of do the work ourselves. I came up with three different sections. So I don't know if that's what you guys had. Three sections. Um, and remember the verses. So I'm going to include chapter 5, verse 1. The verses in the chapters are, are not in the original manuscripts. The English Bible added them in 1560. But they're, they're there to help us to kind of say, so when we're all on the same page, this is the verse we're talking about. It just helps us be on the same page. So it, there isn't necessarily a hard break at chapter 5, verse 1. So I bring that in there. If you're t- looking at structure, I'd say verses 21 through 27 is a section describing the, the principal conflict uh, and difference between Abraham's two sons. And then 20, 28 through 31 connects this allegory directly to the church. And then chapter 5, verse 1 is a summary statement of why does he say what he's saying. Uh, maybe you have a, a different breakdown, but I, I think the big idea is this. Church, stand for your freedom and resist slavery. Church, stand for your freedom and resist slavery. And he's talking more metaphorically. So let's go to this text. If you have your Bibles, look at chapter 4, verse 21. This is what it says. Tell me, you who desire to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Well, that's interesting. You want to be under the law? Do you not listen to the law? He's using law in two different ways. The first is concerns the Mosaic law. Specifically, as we see next week, the practice of circumcision. The second describes the the law as in the sense of the Old Testament or the first five books of the Bible, the Torah is described as the law. Why does he use the word listen then? Why do you think? He uses the word listen because this isn't a predominant society like ours that's mostly literate. Most, there's, there's a high illiteracy rate. And what happens when he writes this letter to the churches in Galatia, they're reading it aloud. When you go to synagogue and you hear the the Hebrew scriptures, they're read aloud. And so, are you listening? Are you listening? Listen to it. The letters of the Old Testament were read aloud. Paul's letters were read aloud. As we read earlier in Galatians, what does it say? What is he getting back to? It testifies that Abraham was justified by what? By faith, not by following the works of the law. Are they really getting what the Bible is saying? They're not. Not exactly. They're listening to different voices that have come in and distorted the message. The gospel distortion was something that Paul was speaking against. His message isn't something that's his message alone. It is God's message that predated him. He's just the the mouthpiece of the message. Galatians chapter 4 goes on into a series of comparisons. So if you look at it, 
if you kind of break it down in your Sunday school class, I'm sure you guys talked about this. There are two sons, two moms, two origins, two covenants, and two locations. So two sons, there's Isaac and Ishmael. There's two moms, there's Hagar the slave, and he refers to Sarah the free. There's two origins. Uh, Ishmael comes from the flesh. Uh, and then there's the, the promise. God is the origin of Isaac. Two covenants, there's the old and it implies the, the new. There's two locations. There's Mount Sinai or Jerusalem, he connects the two. And then a Jerusalem above, a different kind of Jerusalem. This allegory grows out of details found in the context of Genesis chapter 16 and 17 and 21. Paul ends this section by quoting Isaiah 54, demonstrating that the barren woman of promise will have children, drawing a connection to God's continued work echoing the promise that he gave to Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed, that he would be the father of a nations. Paul's audience was part of fulfillment of this. He spoke to Christians who were Jews and Christians who were Gentiles. They were men and women, young and old, slave and free. Likely Paul's detractors were using this, um, this Old Testament language. Even though they were Gentiles, that means they're non-Jews. Likely he's, they're using Old Testament text to prove their point, and Paul's going back to the same text to prove his point, to make his connections for his readers so they'd have some kind of understanding of this. The story in Genesis tells of Abraham and God giving him a covenant promise to, to give him a child. He's kind of old. He's kind of old at the time. In fact, he's 75 years old. Now, people had ch- children older back then, if you look at the, how they did the, aging, a- a- the numbering of ages and stuff. But, but it was pretty remarkable. God spoke to him. He'd have a promised child. His wife was old as well. And Abraham waited and waited and waited for God to keep his promise. That would have been hard. Maybe you've waited for God to answer a prayer Maybe you've waited for something you were expecting. Here he has a revelation. I mean, this supernatural encounter, and God promises, and he waits. Do you know how long he waits? Proverbs says, a hope deferred makes a heart sick. I don't think uh, he was prepared for this. God spoke to him. We see how he speaks to him in the Old Testament. But we don't get a picture of what he speaks to in the moments of silence, in the years of silence. God gives some special revelation to him, and he goes about his day-to-day life, and he goes and goes and goes. And we know that Sarah, his wife, doesn't have a child for a long while. Every month would go by, I, I imagine they'd wonder, is there a little child inside of me growing? Or inside my wife growing? And perhaps she doubted. Was, was Abraham really telling the truth? Was he just making this up? Did God really say that? Maybe Abraham had his own doubts. How long did they wait? 10 years. That's 120 months. And I wonder if they thought maybe God's got him on a holding pattern. Maybe they misunderstood. Maybe they needed to do their part to help make God's plan happen. And if you know the story, Sarah had an idea. She had a slave, Hagar. Abraham would get her pregnant and they would have a surrogate child. The slave woman would have a son and the promised heir. Simple. 
God's the one who gives life. We could do a fleece and see if God wants this to happen, it will work. Maybe that's what they thought. Regardless of motivation and rationale, their choices made sense to them. They lived in a culture where barrenness, not being able to have a kid, is an embarrassment and shame, where slavery and polygamy were normal. Everyone does it. However, the compromise, this compromise and compromises like this was not how God designed family or property or procreation. Abraham and Sarah were operating in the flesh. That was making a shortcut. They weren't operating in faith. If there was faith, it was faith in themselves, in their own way. The man of faith, Abraham, and our mother, as Paul promoted a faith in themselves. They did what their hearts and minds wanted to do instead of waiting on God. But it was 10 years. God wanted them to wait. They did things their way and in their time, and guess what? God blessed them and gave them a child, or gave him a child with Hagar, Ishmael. But he gave them something else, or they had something else, and bitterness. Immediately, resentment and jealousy set in, and Sarah, who suggested this idea, regretted it. Her idea backfired. And they, they had to wait longer. They had to wait. It wasn't like God just gave them a child then. They waited another 13, 14 years. I bet Abraham wished, at the end of those 24 years, I bet you he regretted what he did. I bet you he wished he didn't do it. What seemed like a good idea one day resulted in anger and envy and harshness and conflict and fear. You don't fix a problem with sin. Sin leads to more sin. And maybe you've seen that. It gives us the context. Paul's talking to these Galatian people about slavery and the flesh and trying to fix things. Let's go back to chapter 4 and verse 24. He moves from, from this quoting and illustrating allegory to more of a metaphor. This, look at how he does, uses his words. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Well, that's a metaphor. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children of forced slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai. In Arabia, that's another metaphor. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is her mother. Another metaphor. What is he saying? What is he getting at? Why does he do this? I think he's making a connection between all these things about Hagar, Hagar, covenant, Mount Sinai, Jerusalem, and this thing about our mother, promise and um, the opposite of the old covenant would be the new covenant, Jerusalem above. He's making some connections here. And sometimes we, we use metaphor to get at something. He was like a bull in a china shop. Well, he's not a bull and it's not a china shop, but he, you're getting at something. Or Miss Blossom Time. The, last week uh, or the other week, we had the Blossom Time Festival. And that person represents us in some way. And so he's drawing these connections, illustrating his point, about doing something in the flesh, being bound in slavery, 
following these religious rules and being faith-filled, trusting the promise of God. So what are these? Let's see. So where am I at? So what do these all connect to? Paul has Hagar. He connects that to Mount Sinai, to Jerusalem, to the Old Covenant. So what does it have in common? What's the common denominator? You remember God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. That's where we get the Ten Commandments. Jerusalem's a temple, the center of the religion. And it's where the opposition to Christianity is coming from. The Judaizers, they call them, are coming out of that area saying, no, we've got to follow the law to get God, make God happy. On the other side, Paul is talking about Sarah, the new covenant, new birth, promise. Verse 26, he makes a connection to his reader, the free woman. Jerusalem above is our mother. In verse 27, Paul quotes Isaiah as a prophet, building his reasoning. What does he say? He says, for it's written. Here's a quote from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. Rejoice, O barren one who doesn't bear. Now, Sarah wasn't able to bear kids. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who is a husband. God predicted by the power of the Holy Spirit through Isaiah that one day, this promise to Abraham, which was that you will be the father of the nations, you'll be a father of a nation, and you will bless all nations, in Genesis 12 and 17, will be fulfilled. He promised to Abraham his children would be more numerous than the grains of the sand of the seashore, more than the sand on our beautiful Michigan shore. But he only had Isaac. He only had Isaac. However, the barren woman would have more children. And God fulfilled this promise. He brings life to death. He raises up children spiritually. And so there's a connection between our new birth. Even though we're not Jewish and descendants from Abraham, we share in the sonship that he's predicted here. The Galatian church shares in this sonship, even though there's Gentile and the Jew, living, they're living demonstrations of God keeping his promise, multiplying his people. Christians, Jews, and Gentiles alike are both children of the of God by the power of the Spirit, not by flesh, not by following a bunch of religious hoops they need to jump through. God promised to bless all nations, and it was doing that before their eyes. God is still accomplishing that purpose today. And so when we talk about missions, that's what God's doing. He's reaching the nations with the good news about Jesus. He's calling people to himself from every language and every tribe and every nation. And he's building the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We come to this second section, verse 28 through 29. He's, he's going to connect it more and more to the church. Verse 28, now you brothers, spiritual brothers, like Isaac, are children of a promise, of promise. But just at the, that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Paul experienced persecution. Last week we talked about in Philippians that Paul was beat with rods because of his faith. He was sent to prison because of his faith. The Judaizers came in there and said, it's not good. you're not good enough. You need to jump through some religious hoops. Uh, how did this happen to Isaac and Sarah? In Genesis chapter 21, verse 9, it says that Ishmael mocked Sarah that somehow there's this persecution and he's allegorically connecting it. Well, in the same way, we're, we're persecuted for our faith. 
Paul went on to connect Sarah and Abraham, what they did with Ishmael and Hagar, with what we should do with those who would enslave us to some kind of religious system that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel of grace. Look at verse 30 and 31. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son, the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. In context, Paul's paraphrase, if you look at the Old Testament, it's not exactly word for word here. He's doing a paraphrase. He does a paraphrase to make this allegorical connection. Sarah told Abraham to cast out the slave woman because he doesn't, she doesn't want to jeopardize the inheritance of her son with the son of his half-brother. So Abraham, in the story, gives Hagar some provisions, and they go off into the wilderness. What's interesting is God protects her and blesses her and cares for her. And what's interesting is God blesses Sarah and Abraham. He keeps his promise. He is faithful, even though they are faithless. He didn't renege on his promise in chapter 20, 12 or chapter 17. He is faithful. And that's just another illustration of where our hope is. It's not in my ability to be a, a great person, or to not do all the bad things, or to do a lot of good things. My hope is in him, in him alone. He is our cornerstone as we sang. The free woman's child was the child of a promise, regardless God did what we could never do. Blessing was done on the basis of God keeping his word, and God offers that to the Galatians as well. The believer is the child of the promise, not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. We're born free in a new birth, the conversion of the soul from death to life. We have a faith by faith and an amazing inheritance, Peter says, that will not perish, spoil, or fade. You think about your bank account. Think about the number. What's that number, positive or negative? Think about the, the debt you might, the load you might carry. No, you have a, an inheritance that, that makes all that pale in comparison. They won't perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you. And we get a foretaste of that, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and have an eternal reality of joy unceasing and increasing forever with the Lord and we can experience in part when Dan and the worship team leads us in song, we get a practice for heaven, a dress rehearsal for thinking of the day when we don't have to deal with sin. We don't have to deal with sickness. We don't have to deal with pain. We don't have to deal with tears and sorrow. And so we have little tastes here and there from the, the freedom of the bondage of sin, the freedom from the, the consequence of sin and the tyranny of our past and false religion. And there's a freedom here that Paul is trying to remind them that, of this reality. So I don't watch a lot of movies. I don't watch a lot of TV. I'm watching more this year to connect with my kids. Uh, but when I was in college, one movie I watched was Braveheart. And there's a story of William Wallace, the Scotsman, who uh, is up against England. And he leads a charge to free Scotland from, from the evil English and uh, his cry is freedom. And maybe you saw that movie where he just shouts it out. And they come to chapter 5, verse 1, and you read this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. The children of the promise are free. How so? How are we free? Remind me again. Jesus said as much in John 8, If you abide in my word, you 
are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What did he mean? What did he teach? He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Son of Man didn't come to serve, but to, not, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came to heal the sick, the sin sick soul. He came to redeem the sinner. He came to die. He came to rise. Jesus taught that our hearts, out of our hearts, flow all types of evil. And we can't follow a list of rules to right our wrongs. We can't offer a sacrifice that will adequately fix our relationship, relational breakdown with God. And Mike shared with us a couple weeks ago that. We can't ignore our guilt. We can't hide our guilt. We can't wash our guilt away. A drastic work needed to be done. We are slaves to sin apart from Jesus. We are stuck. We are broken. And Jesus came to release us, to free us, to heal us, to fix us. He died for our sin. He died that all who believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He died to make us free, to free and free indeed. Chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. The second part repeats that idea with two commands. Here's a takeaway. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to yoke of slavery. Stand firm and don't submit to the yoke of slavery. I'm full circle. Church, stand for your freedom and resist slavery. Where do you stand? What do you stand for? This is a, a freedom we all should stand for. This is a promise. This is a historical fact. Jesus came, he lived, he died, and rose to set us free. And this is more important than politics. This is more important than skin color. This is more important than nationality. This is more important than your job. This is more important than your neighborhood. This is more important than your family. Your relationship with Jesus is the most important thing about you. Do you believe that? Let's stand on that. Let's stand on our relationship with Jesus. It gives us a relationship with the Heavenly Father. Paul went on in verse 1 with this command to tell us to not do something. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We want to resist alternatives. What alternatives? What's a yoke that binds us and holds us back from fully relying and trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone? I don't think we're tempted to circumcise all the male adults. At least I hope not. Um, that was their struggle. I think we have different ones. Um, I think that would be like having to force us to drink curdled milk or eat moldy bread or something really bad. Uh, what enslaves us? There are ways in which our flesh will take a shortcut. Ah, I don't want to wait any longer. I'm sick of waiting. I got to help God out. There are ways where we distance ourselves from trusting in God and his promises. We put more of the onus on us than God. How so? Well, I thought of materialism. Materialistic solution tries to find our identity and life in God's gifts, not God himself. How does it work? 
I, I'm really living for that rush. You know, you go on Amazon, you push buy now. That feels good, at least to me. Live for that rush. You go out and make a purchase. I'm living for that. It's not necessarily bad to buy something. You need to, to live, right? But what am I living for? What am I hoping in? What am I loving? What consumes me? What controls me? I thought about this because I was searching for, I, you know, you go to Facebook Marketplace and you search for different things. And I, one of the things I'm thinking, oh, a canoe would be great. So I look for a canoe. And I look for a canoe. Like different, okay, let's say I buy one. Will that make me happy? Maybe for a little bit, it might. But then I got to, you know, okay, well, I got to get a, something to carry it. You know, is it going to fit on my car? You know, put something on top? So I see the inside, maybe I need to buy a car or a trailer. So now I'm into that, and that's exciting and fun. So I buy that. Would that make me happy? Well, for maybe for a little bit, but then I got to use it it's sitting out there. So I got to plan a trip. You know, me and my, my boy, we're going to go out and we're going to canoe the Galeen. Will that make me happy? And you see, just you go from thing to thing to thing to thing, or, you know, activity to activity, activity. Is that going to make me happy? Now, activity is wrong, but what am I living for? What am I hoping in? What consumes me? The Judaizers were looking to follow a bunch of rules. That's where it is. Follow the religion. Is that what it's about? Paul's like, no. Resist that slavery. Maybe it's materialism. Getting enough stuff, that'll make me happy. That's actually enslaving us. Maybe it's hedonism or just this pursuit of pleasure. I just want to be happy. I just want to pursue pleasure. Is that going to make you happy? That's not what it's about. Life's about God. Let's pursue God. And then our happiness follows. Moralism. Maybe it's standing on good behavior. If I just, just try harder today, then I'll be happy. Maybe it's about the environment. Let's stand on the impact. Of, I'm going to stand up for envir- the environment. I want this to be the greatest, beautifulest, best place. Environment's a great thing. You know, stand up for the environment, but that's not our hope. Protectionist. We stand on the sense of safety and control for our happiness. If I could just control a little bit more. I need to keep, get my world in order. We need to stand for something bigger and better than all that. We need to stand in our freedom and resist things that enslave us. We must resist the alternatives and stand firm on Christ, our solid rock. He alone is our hope in this life and in the one to come. He has freed us from the bondage of sin. He has promised an inheritance that we know in part but we will know and enjoy soon enough. Some of our friends and family have already made it there. Are you standing on that? Where is your hope? Where is your love? What consumes you? Like, what I'd like to do right now is stand right now, if you can. You don't have to if you can't, but if you can stand, stand right now and close your eyes. Picture beneath you is Jesus, the word of God made flesh. And he is the rock upon which we stand. In Matthew chapter 7, he's telling this great sermon. He says this, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. 
and great was the fall of it. Jesus is your rock, church. He is our only hope in life and death. Substitutes are secondary. They are enslaving, shifting, empty, deadly. Church, stand for your freedom and resist slavery today, tomorrow, and forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for loving us so much you died. Thank you for forgiving us because of that death. Thank you for rising again, promising us that we too will rise. We need you, Jesus. We, I, need you. Help us to stand firm in our faith. Stand firm in you. Stand on you to love you to hope in you, to be consumed by you, and help us resist the temptations that would short-circuit our faith. You are our rock, Lord, and our Redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the message. If you'd like more information about Sawyer Highlands Church and Converge Community Church, and the service times for both campuses, please visit our website at www.sawyerhighlands.org. Until next time, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.